Welcome to LSE IQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Just over a year ago, on the 23rd of June 2016, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union by 51.9%. Many didn't see the result coming. In the 12 months since, Academics, the media, politicians and policymakers have sought to understand the demographic that was seen to have played a key role in delivering Brexit. In this episode, Sue Windybank asks, what can Brexit tell us about the white working class? In 1971, Barking and Dagenham had full employment. You could move from one job to another. From the print to the factory, there were close-knit families. In the first class I taught in 1971, Every single kid's parents worked at Ford's. Nobody left Barking and Dagenham. Ten years ago, there were no black kids in my school. These are the words of a teacher, Fred Torson, as told to Dr Justin Guest, co-director of LSE's Migration Study Unit and assistant professor of public policy at George Mason University. Justin had studied the white working class communities of Barking and Dagenham in the UK and the steel town of Youngstown, Ohio, in the United States. He wanted to understand the social and political trends that he argues later underpinned Brexit, as well as the election of President Trump. Both Dagenham and Youngstown have undergone simultaneous economic, social and political collapse over the past decades. They have seen traditional industries disappear and radical demographic change with the white working class becoming the minority in areas they once defined. The nostalgia for the past expressed by Fred Torson, often accompanied by a sense of a loss of power, were themes that came up often in the interviews Justin conducted with the people who lived in these areas. In the mid-20th century, the vast majority of people were white in the United Kingdom and the United States, and the vast majority of them were working class. And by working class, we mean people without university degrees. And when you have that broad of a constituency, um, they are likely to swing in different political directions and they are the most crucial element of the population uh, to drive popular vote victories. And that's precisely what's happened. They were in many ways a bellwether for their respective countries. As the 20th century went on, their numbers dwindled because more and more people were becoming university educated. Um, There was vast demographic change due to the aging and fertility of white populations, but also the influx of, uh, of people of immigrant origin uh, who were not necessarily white, uh, and some of whom were not necessarily working class. And so the, when, in democracies, when populations change, when the compositions of, of uh, populations change, so does the composition of the country's political views. And that's precisely what's happened. And so white working class people today are not some small minority on the fringe of their societies, but that's the way they feel. They feel like a minority in societies that they once defined, even when the truth is that they represent in the United States, at worst, a powerful plurality of the population, somewhere between 33 and 50% of the country, depending on how you define working class. And in the United Kingdom, they represent about a majority of the population and yet they are they are they feel this sense of estrangement i wondered if it was this sense of estrangement that was behind the supposed white working class vote to leave the european union justin provided some more context 
Now your research, we talk about the white working class and obviously they're not a homogenous group and you were particularly interested in, in what makes people vote in certain ways within this group. Yeah, this is not a homogenous group. They are under very similar circumstances, um, but they don't behave in uh, convergent ways. We have seen a lot of divergence. Many of the people I interviewed are strong Labour supporters in the United Kingdom. Um, others have dabbled with the Tories and the Lib Dems. Uh, and many have been attracted to UKIP and some before that to the BNP. Uh, others have just not voted at all and said to hell with the whole system. And so I was particularly interested in what drove people into these different uh, political behaviors. And in particular, I was interested in, in what led people to more extreme views, uh, because that's the, that's the anomaly that, that really could use some further explaining. And what did you find? In many ways, I thought that I would see a, a story that was similar to the marginality of the people I studied in my first book. And my first book, as you know, Sue, is about Muslim political behavior uh, in Europe and uh, focusing on the United Kingdom and Spain in particular. And what I found in the first book was that marginality is driven by a sense of relative deprivation, the idea that people have an idea about the way the world is and the way the world actually ought to be in their ideals. And the bigger the discrepancy, the more likely I found people to engage in, in, in Islamic extremist groups. Well, I thought that might be similar here in the sense that, you know, the more, the, the bigger that gap would be, um, the more likely they would support far-right parties and movements. But the story is actually a bit more complicated. With white working class people, it was much, it was not so much about the way the world is and the way the world ought to be. It's about the way the world is and the way the world used to be. It is that sense of nostalgia that was driving people to the far right that I found. Dr. Lisa McKenzie is a fellow in LSE's Department of Sociology. Her research has looked at the working class communities of Bethnal Green in East London and St Anne's in Nottingham. She disagrees with the idea that the working class is being pushed to political extremes. I mean, I recently reviewed Justin Guest's book and I really did, I liked it very much. And actually the bravery of trying to tackle this at the moment in itself needs commending because even tackling this, even suggesting, you know, that there is any sort of problem relating to class inequality at the moment is quite tricky. But would I say that, that people, working class people, are being pushed to the margins of politics? No, I wouldn't say that at all. I, I mean, not here in the UK. The US, I'm not, I'm not so sure about. But in the UK, no, because, you know, one of the things that really showed us this is you know, the actual levels of voting in poorer neighbourhoods, but also who they're voting for as well. So if we look at the last by-election um, in Stoke-on-Trent, which, you know, has been unfairly and cruelly called, you know, Brexit Central. So in Stoke, um, there's two important things there, is that UKIP, didn't win the seat. Um, Labour held on to their seat. But the other important thing is that only 36% of the, the, the vote came out. So that means that 64% didn't come out. So that's not about working class people being pushed to the margins of politics. That's about working class people not getting, you know, dropping out of a mainstream political system altogether. So, while Justin Guest believes that some sections of the white working class have become politically radicalised, 
Lisa believes that the bigger issue is their disconnection from politics altogether. But what was the white working class's role in Brexit? Was this demographically actually the core of the Brexit vote? In terms of race, the Leave vote was white. According to a poll of voters by the Conservative peer Lord Ashcroft, white voters voted to leave the EU by 53% to 47%. This is in contrast to the 33% of those who described themselves as Asians and the 27% of black voters who voted to leave. However, the issue of class is more complicated. Dr Dennis Novi, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Warwick and an Associate at the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE, looked at who voted for Brexit. He and his colleagues analysed the 380 UK counting areas that voted in the referendum, excluding Northern Ireland and Gibraltar. They wanted to determine the social and economic characteristics that correlated with an area voting to leave the European Union. For example, we find that areas that have a fairly high share of manufacturing employment were much more likely to vote out, and manufacturing employment arguably is related with traditional working class people. We have measures of education. Perhaps working class people on average have lower educational attainment than non-working class people. So these findings that we have are consistent with the view that a working class type of person might be more likely to vote leave. However, it's not as simple. A big story here is also about turnout. If you look at traditional working class areas, especially traditional working class areas with a very strong labor support, perhaps in the north of England, turnout was often quite low. So you cannot say that working class people turned out in droves to vote to leave the European Union. Lots of them actually probably didn't vote at all. And we know that from other polls, labor party supporters, people who normally vote Labour in a typical election, they voted to remain in the European Union by quite a big margin, 63%. So this, this simple characterization, oh, it's kind of working class voters that are left behind, that, le that vote for UKIP and also that vote for leaving the European Union is probably not supported by the data. Again, the, the typical voter that wanted to leave the European Union is probably what you might call a daily telegraph type of reader. Somebody who is a little older, um, and older people on average don't have as much education as much younger people. Um, they're not necessarily poor because older people often have houses that they live in and those houses appreciated quite substantially over the last few decades. But they are not as happy about the change that the country has gone through. They might not be happy about immigration, even though in the very areas where they live, often there might be very, very little immigration. So let's not forget that this is the largest block of voters. It is not UKIP voters, the numbers are not larger, it's actually Conservative Party voters, because the numbers are much larger for people supporting the Conservative Party and then voting to leave. Despite this, Lisa McKenzie told me that she saw people who had not been interested in voting in the 2015 UK general election enthusiastically registering to vote in the months before the EU referendum. For those that did vote, what was it that had caught their imagination? If you were to, say, speak to some of the people that you perhaps know from St Anne's where you lived for yeah, a while yeah. or any yeah. of those communities and ask them to explain in their own language why they had voted for Brexit, 
what would they say? I have actually done that because the last three, three and a half years, I've been doing, um, I'm an ethnographer, so I've been doing research with a community in, uh, they are mainly white working class, as much as I hate that term, but that's, you know, that's the term that there is, um, in Bethnal Green in, in East End of London. Um, and it was really interesting because in 2015 when we had a general election, and remember I've been doing this work for three years, so I've followed all sorts of events, so, you know, you know, talked to men and women about, you know, what's happening in the newspapers today, just general conversations. Um, and I've been logging those conversations and recording them and recording film footage. And in 2015 election, as a sociologist, of course, I was, I was really interested what they thought. And what they thought was that they were not interested. <laughs> they had no interest whatsoever. And I remember in 2015 really trying to get them to talk about the election. And they were like, I'm not interested. I'm not bothered. You know, th these people don't care about us. We don't, you know, why should we? We are not interested in that system. They hate us and we hate them. Now, this is from Bethnal Green, which is three miles away from Parliament. They felt, the people there felt that the that national politics, even though they lived in London, was not connected to them. This was the same in St Anne's in Nottingham. It's also been uh, the same sort of story in the uh, Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire mining towns that I've recently been doing research, that national politics are not representing working class people. Um, 2016 came along. So remember, I've been doing this research in Bethnal Green and before that St Anne's. 2016 came along and the referendum, I kind of expected the same response, I'll be honest. As, I, as sort of we entered into March and April, very little interest. I was bored of it, everybody, you know, by the time it, the debate had even started, most of us were bored of it. Um, and I thought it, it would be very similar to 2015 election. However, as we started coming up to the end of May, I realised that this was not the same thing at all. And the people that I was speaking with weekly in Bethnal Green was becoming more animated about the referendum, more interested in the referendum, and started registering online to vote in the referendum. These were same people that a year before were not going to vote, had no intentions of voting, and wasn't registered to vote. A year later, when the EU referendum came around, they were interested. Immigration from within and outside the EU has, of course, been seen as a major factor in the Brexit vote. By extension, this has helped reinforce the stereotype of the white working class as being racist. I asked Justin Guest if this was a fair portrayal. Well, first off, we should establish that plenty of elites are racist and plenty of liberals are racist. <laughs> um, and, you know, from my perspective, yeah, it was discomforting at times. There is bigotry out there. And I think that it is that bigotry, it is that perception of white working class people as being inherently racist, um, which in many cases is true, and in any other cases it's not. But in any case, it is that uh, perception that has made so many urban liberals and elites turn a, a deaf ear to this population. As soon as they hear something that sounds offensive and racist, it's almost like you're complicit by listening to it. Many of those Justin interviewed felt subject to discrimination in the form of affirmative action and diversification policies. 
In Dagenham and Barking, for example, he found that people were frustrated because they perceived that the current social system grants immigrants advantages that are not provided to white Britons. These might be in the form of public housing preference or favouritism disguised as anti-racism platforms. In Britain, much of it was about social status. Um, so I, I was interested in nuancing it a bit further. I wanted to see both social deprivation, but also economic deprivation in terms of your financial well-being, but also political deprivation in terms of your sense of power. What unites the US and the American case is a sense of power deprivation. White working class people who support far-right uh, candidates and parties uh, demonstrated a larger discrepancy in terms of their sense of personal power or the extent to which politicians care about them. But in Britain, there is also this social deprivation. They feel like they have drifted further and further to the fringe of their society's hierarchies, those social ladders. And they have also concurrently uh, perceived that immigrants, Muslims um, in particular, have drifted closer and closer to society's center. Do you think there's validity in that view? In other words, do I think that Muslims and immigrants are closer to society center? I, I think what this is a backlash against is a greater sense of equality and equal footing, a leveling of the playing field, which sounds nice in theory, but when you're accustomed to a sense that your country values your heritage, values your sense of authenticity, you feel like that has been cheapened when a society is handing out housing to newcomers as soon as they show up, um, accepting uh, people for labor that was previously done by nationals. So it feels like your social value, your, your social worth to your society has been undermined. And so, you know, for many of us who are occupying these meritocratic spaces in society, we nod our heads and say, yeah, it should be meritocratic. It should be a level playing field for all. But for white working class people, it actually feels relatively like the system has been turned against them, that now they're actually being penalized because they are white and British and working class. For Lisa McKenzie, immigration was not the primary driver behind those in working class communities who did vote to leave the EU. In London, sort of the key reason that I was talking to a lot of women at the time was housing school places, healthcare. Now, was they relating this right, you know, directly to the EU? Not really. So they weren't making a direct connection. And, and again, this goes against, you know, many column inches about the way that white working class people in particular have reacted to European migration. They weren't making that connection. So they weren't saying the reason we haven't got housing is because of EU migrants. They weren't saying that. They were talking about their own experiences of not having anywhere to live. And in, in actual fact, over the last three years in London, the connection for housing, school places, has really been laid at the feet of, I suppose, the new middle class that are coming in. Some of those will be EU migrants, yeah. But actually, people are talking about wealthy people, much, much more than sort of different people from different countries. It's about wealth coming into London and moving them out. Um, when I spoke to people in St Anne's, in Nottingham, when I spoke to people in the old mining towns, in the post-industrial areas, again, these were very local issues. So they were talking about, you know, in the mining towns, 
only having one bus a day. Now this may seem crazy, you know, I've actually spoke to people about the reasons why people voted at leave. And when I've told them something like, you know, they voted because they were so upset about having one, one bus a day, the reaction has been, oh my God, those stupid people have ruined our lives because they didn't have a bus. With, but absolutely failing to understand what having no transport system where you live means to you if you can't get out. It means you can go somewhere, you can't come back. The places where I'm talking about are very isolated. They need public transport. They need, they, you know, they need the things that we've got here in London, but they don't have them and they've not had them for 30 years. There was a chance here to channel that anger into something specific and it was the EU referendum. And, and, you know, and I think in the UK, the Leave campaign actually ran a, you know, a good campaign. Telling people to take control, it, it captured the imagination of the UKIPers on one hand, you know, he's been banging on about sovereignty for 30 years and it went right across to the people up in the mining towns who don't have a bus. It, it went right into the young women that I've been working with in Bethnal Green that haven't got a home. And so that one line, take back control, actually that's what people felt that they wanted. You know, they wanted some control over their own lives. Does that mean that they are racist, evil, you know, that, that lazy? No, no, of course it doesn't. It, of course it doesn't. And one of the worst things that have come out of this EU referendum for me is the way that that rhetoric has been stuck to a group of people. They weren't stupid. They, it's not that they didn't understand the arguments. They did. But they chose to use that moment to display a rage. Dennis Novi's research supports the link between the Leave vote and cuts to public services, which he says some may have unfairly associated with immigration. Our research is consistent with this idea that having bad public services is seen by people as a cost of globalization and as a reason to leave the European Union. And when I say bad public services, I mean various benefit cuts that have gone through um, housing cuts, disability benefits, but also public services, more broadly speaking, in particular health services through the NHS. Oftentimes, these cuts and, and then deteriorations in public services might have been associated with immigration. If immigrants come in, we know that immigrants tend to pay much more in terms of taxes than they ever take out in public services or in the costs of public services. However, if the government of the day decides not to spend that new money that is coming in through immigration on public services, it may not be surprising that people often might think, well, it's the immigrants that actually put pressure on public services, schools, and so on, even though those immigrants bring in so much money that could be used to improve public services in a substantial way. The issues surrounding why those who voted for Brexit did so are clearly more complicated than a disaffection with the institution of the European Union or a kickback against immigration. I asked Lisa what needed to happen for the working class to feel that their vote for Brexit had been successful, that something had changed for them. For working class people, really, this, what needs to be back on the table is the rights of workers, the, the pay of workers, you know, social housing, healthcare, 
ending austerity, um, you know, really looking at high pay, um, really, really looking at the way that our higher education and our education system is working, because it's only working for some. We need to discuss what has been happening with inequality. We need to talk about the realities of what happens when there are unfair disadvantages for some and unfair advantages for others. We need to get past this idea that social mobility is a real thing. And we need to start talking about inequality as it is, not as we imagine it, we would like it to be. So do I think that, there, no, I think, I think that, you know, like I said, the middle class don't get many opportunities to be hysterical. Lady died, Princess Diana's death, I think, was the last one. I think plenty of working class people were hysterical then. Yeah, so I think they did. Yeah, they did as well. Yeah, but Brexit has given them. You know, they've got the. You know, it's been a great time, really, for them. And for Lisa, the spotlight should not just be on the working class. So you know, for me, I mean, for a start, they need to be more research on middle class people. The normalisation of every middle class value that there is, that free movement of people is a good middle class value that's righteous. With free movement of people, there are definitely educated bankers travelling around Europe, but there are also very, very poor and exploited workers travelling around Europe as well, usually walking their dogs or cleaning their homes or plumbing their, their kitchen in. And that's not right either. I want to speak for working class people, not white working class people, not black working class people, not Polish working class people, but working class people. I asked Justin about the complete disconnect the white working class feel from political parties. What do mainstream political parties need to do to reach out to this group? And are there dangers in that for those parties? Well, they need to connect with them. I mean, the, the, the very basis of politics is in a sense of identification. This person represents me and he or she or they represent my views and they understand what I'm going through. And, you know, no one expects politicians to fix everything, um, but they do expect some recognition, some acknowledgement, and there's a sense of validation when that happens. But what has been happening for so long is that white working class people have either been ignored uh, or they have been dismissed. And there's reasons why. In many cases, it's uncomfortable for parties. Maybe the Tories could connect over their Euroscepticism or their xenophobia, but they could not tolerate um, their views on economics and their very protectionist views on economics. Um, for the Labour Party, protectionism was A-OK, -okay, but their nativism was the problem. And so both parties began to drift, particularly Labour, though, because this group of people was so um, such a backbone for the Labour Party for so long. You know, Labour really jettisoned them when they began to wholeheartedly embrace minority groups because they didn't think they could circle that square. The problem is that in doing so, Labour has, yes, cozied up to cosmopolitan liberals in, in, in Greater London and, and, and elsewhere, but the problem is they haven't been able to realize and paint a picture of their party as one that is for the working class more broadly. Why is it that white working class problems have to be treated differently from black working class problems or brown working class problems? They're just problems and they experience them in often very similar ways. You've previously looked at um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds. I wonder how you regard the competing claims of the two groups that you've studied. Yeah, I think that there is a natural reaction 
to hearing a work like mine, which I think is most controversial because it actually takes an empathetic view towards this much maligned group of people. Um, and it says to, and it says, you know, but this group of people has experienced enormous amounts of structural advantage. They've benefited from the oppression of minorities. You know, why should I feel any kind of sympathy? And you know, why are we why are we promoting their gripes? Why are we promoting their frustration over groups of people who really are more deserving? And my response to that is that it's a very unproductive debate to be having. They're not mutually exclusive. There is no um, zero-sum relationship in terms of our sympathy and our sense of understanding. When the truth is what we need to do is recognize all and bring them into uh, a, a sense of solidarity with one another so that we can see what ties bind us all together, what stitches us all together, what is threaded through each of our plights. I feel like I want to burst into a Bruce Springsteen uh, song. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he sang about Youngstown. He has a, he? yeah, he wrote a song, song called, here in Youngstown. Yeah, my sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down, way down in Youngstown. Yeah, definitely. You have to YouTube it. <laughs> It's clearly wrong to lay Brexit solely at the feet of the white working class. However, it has shone a light on their sense of disenfranchisement and disengagement from society. Brexit will have many challenges, but one key one will be for the main political parties to listen to and connect with this demographic and reintegrate them into a broader coalition of voters. What do you think? Tell us using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by James Ratti, Tom Williams and Sue Windybank. The words of Fred Tolson are voiced by Peter Carroll. It was based in part on the following research. The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality by Justin Guest. It's Not Ideal, Reconsidering Anger and Apathy in the Brexit Vote Among the Invisible Working Class, published in the journal Competition and Change and the book Class Cleansing Grieving for London, to be published in October 2017, both by Lisa McKenzie, and Who Voted for Brexit, a comprehensive district-level analysis by Sasha Obeka, Timo Fetzer and Dennis Novi. For more episodes of this podcast, all the associated links, and to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ. See you next time when we ask why haven't we won the war on drugs? <laughs>